This morning we're here to look again at 2 Timothy chapter 2. So as you turn in your Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 2, let's read God's Word and see what He has to say for all of us, but especially for the children in the faith. This is God's words for us this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Please pray with me. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. I pray that you would strengthen us, empower us by the grace that is in Christ Jesus that we can hear and understand, that we can learn and apply that we can be empowered to strive and enjoy the good gifts that you have given us. I pray this through the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So many wonderful contexts that we could pull and help to frame this. I hope to do that as we go along, especially this morning in recognition of our seniors going to nursing school and and going into business, and going into the military, and there's, a, there's so many beautiful things. But in order to, to capture a lot of those and see how this really personal, particular letter written 2,000 years ago from a pastor to a church planner to a, a child in the faith, his son in the faith, to see how that is applied is true for all of us across seasons I want to pick up where we left off last week and then hopefully land with these really important, the the three main points, which are the three out of the four imperatives, the commands that Paul has given to Timothy. So if you look in your Bibles, right before chapter 2 is is the the little paragraph where Paul has given two negative examples, um, Phygelus and Hermogenes, and then one positive example, Onesiphorus, and They're not the compare-contrast. They're the, what do you do then, Timothy, when you meet people like this? What do you do then, Timothy, to make sure you're not that guy? What do you do then, Timothy, my child in the faith, to keep what you've been given? In other words, for all of us, no matter what life stage, it boils down to how we understand what to do with a command. How do we take those commands? How do we take the the fancy words, the imperative, the requirement of Scripture that I do something and maybe do it differently or do it with an enjoyment, do it not just in behavior outwardly, but in heart attitude inwardly? Do I take them as as warnings? Do I scoff at them because it's impossible? Do I resign myself and accept that I just can't ever measure up 
so I can just eke on by in my Christian life, showing up when I need to show up and doing what I think I need to do? Or do we realize that love-saturated grace that Timothy has seen in Paul and Paul received from Christ that is going to permeate, sink down into every fiber, every nook and cranny of our heart, of our attitude, of our lives, and out of that get to work and strive and be enlisted and serve and plead and persevere. That's the question for us. How do we take commands? Now, Paul is writing to Timothy. He says the very first words. I want to make sure we get this because there's a lot of other ways that we see whether it's the authority figure requiring those commands. Since we got two guys about to go into boot camp, I'm going to give that illustration. You're not going to like a thing they have to say to you. Let's start there. You're not going to like the way they say those nice things to you. Let's add that. You're not going to like what they make you do if you don't listen to them that quick on top of that. And you're going to get to do a lot of push-ups and sand fleas as well. I don't know if Benning has... I'm going to send you some sand fleas in the mail, Garrett, if they don't have them already in the Army. I got to enjoy Marine Corps boot camp, which is, is famous for the, the sand fleas. And sand fleas are really objects of sanctification. If you didn't know that before, if you've never been to the beach that has those, that like no CMs, little things that grow in your skin and it's itchy for a, a long time. The point is, regardless of where God has called us to, we have to see the very first phrase in this. Paul writes, with these comparisons in mind, with this, these two examples of what not to do and this one example of what to do, he writes to Timothy, his child in the faith. What we cannot do, and we've mentioned this a lot of different ways and from different angles and different contexts, we cannot think that the doing gives us the right to be the child. God always has flipped it around. It's always, this is who you are, my child. So do this. The indicative, the description of your love that you receive from the Father, of who you are in the faith, of how he's done everything for you in Christ Jesus, that flows into, and out of that identity comes, now what do I do with this? How can I meet these obligations? How can I obey this command? Because I, I, just to look down this list, our three points, by the way, are being strengthened by grace, entrust the gospel to faithful men, and share in suffering. I don't know about you, but those aren't lists that I can tick off by 11.23 on a Sunday morning. I can't get those done. I can't do enough. So what do we do with these commands? First of all, we see that our identity anchors them. Paul says that he, he's used that same phrase at the very beginning of this letter and in the beginning of 1 Timothy. And also, we see this relationship that has been built over years that starts all the way back in Acts 16 and goes through many, many church that Paul, the, the churches that Paul writes uh, 
almost all of his epistles, his letters are written to churches that Timothy was intimately, personally, relationally involved in, saw Paul at work, understood both the joys and the challenges, the, the strugglings and the suffering, the trials and the heartache. And so it's personal here. And for Paul to even more emphasize to Timothy that you are, you are my child here, not as a demeaning factor, def, definitely not. Kids, don't take that as when your parents say, look here, child. Yeah, sometimes that tone can mean something. But they're, they're saying, you're, you're, you're one of me, you're better. I'm loving you here in this guideline, this regu- regulation, this rule. And we have to start there with how Paul is addressing Timothy. But then, you then, my child, here's what you must do. You must be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Such a rich phrase. First of all, grace is that incredible undeserved gift. That, that It's what started us in salvation. It's what saves us. For by grace, you have been saved. And then, it doesn't slow down. It empowers us. It encourages us. And we can't just relegate this, just put this into the category of the physical level. It doesn't just get my lazy head off the pillow in the morning. It drives my character. It anchors my heart. It shapes my emotions. It means that I can desire and have affections towards not just what is okay and eh, but what is good and glorious. That's the grace that he's talking about. Please catch one of the most significant places where Paul anchors what grace is and how it operates in the salvation of God's people is written in the letter to the very place that Timothy is ministering. It's in Ephesus. He writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, one of the most beautiful passages, for it is by grace you have been saved. And this is not of your own doing. It's not because you obeyed the command good enough. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Timothy, I'm sure, knows this. He's he's seen it lived out. He saw the hard aspects of that, of, of trying to think that, well, at least we got, you know, a little bit polished up and a little bit cleaned off and we didn't have those other rest, rough, edges, rough edges like those people did so that we could come to faith. And Paul's reminder is, no, my child, you didn't get yourself into the family of God and you're not keeping yourself in the family of God. It's grace that brought you in and it's grace that's going to hold you fast. Not a result of your work so that you can't boast only in the power of God at work. And earlier in 2 Timothy, we saw Paul say again in chapter 1, verse 9, it was God who saved us, especially those called to the ministry, but all of us to the degree we're all called to ministry. God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of His own purpose and grace which he gave us lavishly, freely, unendingly, unquenchingly in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
such a rich idea to think that gift and the way that we receive gifts are significant to the way that we use and enjoy gifts. How cruel would it be? I'll get to the happy side of it in a second. How cruel would it be to give your child what they were most desiring of as that Christmas present? Or as some of y'all do this, I know, just as the, for no other better reason than I love you, gift. It's not your birthday. It's not an anniversary. It's not the you woke up early day. It's just here. How cruel would it be to give you the gift and then say, nope, you can't ever use it. As in you're commanded not to be able to ever enjoy the gift. Or to think that you have to obey the command in order to enjoy the gift. Neither of those are true here. The gift is what enables and empowers the very enjoyment through the obedience of the command. I'm going to break that out in a little bit different ways grammatically, but I want to warm you all up because I've had more coffee than I'm sure most of you have. So we'll get to that. The positive side of that is, though, how beautiful is it? And, and some of us parents have seen that in the faces of our children. When you, when you set down that Christmas gift and you see the eyes light up and their, their brains are working full gear, full speed to think of which present was it that they're actually, they actually got me because I had like 43 of them on my wish list. And, and then they open it up. And you know the more significant that gift is. You know as a kid that you're going to enjoy it all the more. That's what Paul's getting at when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, by the gift of God's grace working in me, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. The gift, the free gift was not empty. It didn't just fall flat. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Yes, Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, he's, he's given that important nuance that anything we do is because God's empowering us. But that doesn't take away the command that we need to do a whole lot of things that Paul encourages us that God has commanded us. There are many things in those categories. So what do we do with those commands that seem like they're, ooh, that's a stretch on a good day. But especially when it seems really hard. We got, in other words, we got to get this down to a pretty specific brass tacks level because being strengthened by grace is not the slogan that I put above my home workout space just so I can get pumped up in order to do five more pounds of bench press. That, that's not only the kind of strength that Paul's encouraging us to have here. It's the strength of character. It's the strength to do the hard things, especially when we're going to see then they're going to mean we share or endure suffering. It's doing the hard things even when no one's looking. It's doing the right things because it's obeying a good and gracious God. And there's the Spirit's empowerment to do all of those things. Some of us enjoy grace. Some of us thoroughly have 
wrapped our brains and our lives have been conformed to understand the, the picture that God gives us grace solely through the work, the person and work, the, the perfect, complete, full righteousness in Christ. And all I want to encourage you is how good that is that saved you. It's infinitely better the more you see that same power at work in you, the same power that rose Christ from the dead means on a day-in and day-out basis, when you feel like it or not, that the same power at work in Christ lives within you and will drive you, guide you, not just to say no to sin, but to say yes, to enjoy his perfect gift. The gift of thriving, of flourishing, of enjoying good things, especially when they look hard. Now let me break into some grammar. All right. Y'all ready to get your seatbelts on? It's like the part when you go up the roller coaster and you, hear, you like feel everyone. You kids ready? You can put your hands in the air because this is, this is going to get crazy. This phrase, all three of these imperatives, the commands, come in what's called the passive mood, the passive voice. In other words, to be strengthened, to be empowered by grace, it's a command that you have no active participation in except to enjoy the gift. Here's the sports analogy. Now, again, forgive me, I, I did not make the baseball team, so y'all are going to think this. Okay. Think of your favorite wide receiver. Steven's already got like 14 Tennessee balls in mind. So think of that. Like he's, sprint, he's running this perfect, glorious route. He's in the end zone. All he has to do is do this, and the ball's there. Touchdown. He simply received it. It was waiting for his hands. He, he just got it. Or if you want to go with me in the outfield, you're standing out in left field. Not a lot of action goes on in left field. You're, you're waiting. Oh, what's that sound? Crack. Oh. Okay, oh, ha, I caught the ball. Yeah, way to go team. Okay, let me examples. You simply receive the gift of grace. It's a passive thing that you're involved in in order, empowering you, enabling you, strengthening you to then see what the gift is and how to use it in order to obey the command. Now, the second aspect of the grammar there, and I would love to talk much more about that, but I think it's more caffeine talking than what would be helpful. The, the preposition that Paul uses, be strengthened by the grace, by is a preposition, shows a relationship between two nouns, and in Christ Jesus, in is a preposition. Those two are the same word, and now we're not going to get too hung up on the, what the Greek was behind it, except that the grace by, be strengthened by the grace, and in Christ Jesus is pointing somewhere. Using the same preposition to point to something is how Paul emphasizes that it's your union in Christ Jesus. The grace is not just a free-floating good idea, just a nice favor somewhere out there existing in the universe. It's that which is anchored deeply, per personally, 
relationally in who Jesus was and what he did for you and for me. That's the grace. And then the spirit that unites you and I to Christ and to one another, that's the strength that grace gives us. It's not in and of ourselves. It's not be strengthened by your own bootstraps. Be strengthened in your own moral character. It's solely, simply, but infinitely be strengthened by the grace in Christ Jesus. And the third grammatical point is the the definition of grace. It's a free gift. And we have to let that sink in. It's a grace that you didn't work to deserve and can't then maintain and earn. It's a gift that is given. And I hope that especially those of you young people, you've been raised most of your life in our culture and society Even sometimes our parenting says that you are how you perform or you are what you've earned and achieved. And your value and your obedience means that you're better or worse based on some of those things. And maybe that's not the intent, but sometimes that's the perception. And and the gospel is nowhere near there. Especially the gospel of free grace. You can't possibly deserve it in the first place. You didn't earn it. You can't do anything to keep it. You get to enjoy it. And in enjoying it, you get to obey this command to be strengthened in and through the person of Christ and how he's at work to help you say no to the temptations of sin and yes to the full thriving and flourishing that's only to be found in Christ. John Stott puts it this way. Timothy is to find his resources for ministry, and I hope that this is not just uh, a good note for pastors, for all of us to find our resources for all of life and ministry, not in his own nature, but in Christ's grace. It is not only for salvation, or we would like to nuance that and say for justification that we are dependent on grace, but for service also, daily dying to self, living for Christ, also fully, beautifully by grace. So secondly, the second command, first to be strengthened by the grace, second to what do we do with that? What do we do with that beautiful gift that we've been given? It's, it's not solely for us. It's for us to then entrust that gospel to faithful men. And this is where discipleship gets really personal. That word discipleship isn't mentioned in this particular text, but we see that exact process that Paul is commanding Timothy that is exactly what Paul himself has done numerous times, but especially with Timothy. It's the gospel proclamation. Who Christ is and what he's done for you that makes life plausible, life in Christ believable and and endurable, especially in suffering, which is where he's going eventually. There's four important steps, and if you're one of those that likes specific or numbers, here's the four. First, where does Paul get this gospel? It's it's clear, he says in Galatians 1.12, 
that he received this not through the teachings of other men, but clearly, specifically through a revelation from Jesus himself. So Paul received the gospel. Y'all first have to hear the gospel in order to entrust it to somebody else. You have to know the gospel. It's not just enjoy life better this way. And we're all marketers and salesmen for something, whether it's this new pair of really nice shoes or that new restaurant that just opened up down the street. Or, and those are all great and fine. But we have to have received this grace in order to share it and to pass it along. Secondly, Paul says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. That phrase is not just talking about that particular moment that he mentioned in the first chapter of the, the laying on of hands of the elders, the, the Paul and the men in Ephesus that ordained Timothy. It is including that, but all throughout Acts 16, all the way on, every time we see Paul ministering to those young men, especially Timothy, they're in groups. This is how Jesus worked with his 12 disciples. Sometimes he pulls the three aside, James and John and Peter, and shares specifics with them, but they're still, they're in a group. There's witnesses to both the truth and the veracity of that gospel. It's true, and therefore it's worth living that way because it's true. So to, to Paul, for him to say, what you, Timothy, have heard me proclaim in the presence of many witnesses is also to say, and they called me on the carpet when I didn't live that way as well. And for Paul, we see that relationship that he had with Peter. And we see that part of the reason why Timothy has a ministry is in that pretty particular, specific discussion of whether to be circumcised in order to reach Gentiles and Jews or whether not to be circumcised so that you can reach Jews. We can get into that discussion later. But Timothy was so that he could reach the audience that God was sending him to. And that was an important detail that there was a, the, a presence of witnesses that he was ministering to that Paul was saying, these are the guys. These are the people. This is your family of the church that you're going to then be able to proclaim and they're going to hear it and they're going to share it within themselves and it's going to be livable. It's going to sustain because it's plausible in the way that you live it out. And then third, He's to entrust the same good grace that he's heard. He's entrusted to faithful men. This word entrust is a personal commitment towards somebody else. It's, it's not, oh, hey, I got this cool uh, note in a, a fortune cookie once, and here, you, you should read this. That's not entrusting of a life-changing, eternally shaping good news message to somebody else. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13, he says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Talking of God himself. And this helps us to see that the faithfulness of those men is not in their own nature again. It's in how they see Christ as faithful. Because it's the object of our faith. It's us believing in Christ and his faithfulness that allows us to be faithful steadfast and faithful in ourselves. And then the fourth important point is that once Paul's received it, he's passed it on to Timothy in the presence of these witnesses, Timothy is then entrusted that, continue to proclaim 
and pass that along to other faithful men, they in themselves will be able to teach that to others also. How are they going to do that? How are they going to fulfill this command? Just going and randomly sharing it with as many people as they can see? Maybe. I know some of you are, are, have that heart that there is, there is nobody that you know that you don't think is worthy of hearing the good news of Jesus. And I love that, hearing your stories. I love that you've talked to people while you're mowing your yard or while you're getting the groceries or while you're standing in line or while you're doing anything you do. But the way that we shape the lives of others is by being strengthened in the gospel, in the grace of Christ, to overcome maybe the, the fear of what will they think about us? What will this mean for how my career goes, if I'm that guy in the office that is willing to stand up for the gospel. And then finding those other people who see in us that it is worth living differently so that they can also be encouraged and motivated not just to share, hey, is this message I'm supposed to tell you about? As if it's, you know, a, a new bargain at the grocery store. But hey, here's this life-changing good news about what Jesus has come to do that means everything for your eternity. Because then they can also be strengthened by grace and empowered to proclaim that good news as well. That point, the ability, the empowerment, the enabling to entrust the gospel to faithful men that Paul commanded Timothy would be a flat, dead-end, mute point don't read anything else if it had not actually worked in this letter where Timothy was in Ephesus. We know it spread. We, we know it, it went far. We know from Timothy's own life that he continued to, to strive enjoying that. We even know Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 12, right at the end mentions... Um, the author of Hebrews is writing about a lot of people that the audience would know, and he mentions specifically that this Timothy was released so they should be glad, released from prison, for suffering, for enduring, for doing what Paul is commanding that he do through the empowering, enabling, strengthening grace of Christ. Lastly, the third command here is to share in suffering. This is echoed in 2 Timothy 1.8 where Paul writes, endure suffering. And then later in 4.5 where he says the same word, to endure suffering. But I think it's, it's, it's almost one up. There's a difference between enduring something and sharing in something. You guys, whether you're going to college in a few weeks or whether you're going to boot camp a few weeks, you're going to endure a lot. You can endure a lot if you know there's an endpoint. That was always what it was for me. If, as long as I know there's a date, that the next day I can wake up and not have to itch from sand fleas. I can make it. Enduring is one thing, but sharing in that suffering. And that means in this room that I am not here today because of what I am going through. Y'all are here because of what everyone else is going through. And you share in that group suffering, struggling, trials, 
uh, work against defeating sin, work towards enjoying the freedom we have in Christ. We work together, and in a sense, that's sharing one another's suffering. But specifically, Paul's talking about sharing in suffering for the gospel. In other words, when grace puts the power of God on display, when we're strengthened in him and in our weakness, his power is put on display. It shows the, the goodness and glory and worthiness of Christ. But it also means that our sacrifices along that end for that purpose aren't just for me. That we're doing that in a group of witnesses. People are watching. Christians see you as a Christian. Maybe that's a good reason as a believer in a, a non-Christian secular company or as a believer in your neighborhood or as a believer in your family. Not just to stand out so that you can be a good testimony of the gospel, but to stand out so that others who might be wavering, doubting, is living that way really worth it? So they can see your strength empowered by the grace of Jesus Christ and say, yes, it might just be. I think this is part of the problem that Paul gives the examples of Phygelus Hermogenes as a negative example. And Onesiphorus, right, that paragraph right before that, he found mercy from the Lord. He shared that mercy with Paul in prison, and it cost him something. Paul used his example not to say, and so everybody should come visit me in prison in case it costs you something, but to say, and his example shows that the gospel is worth it. So, what do we do with those commands? What do we do with those commands when they seem like they're hard, impossible, not sure if that really fits with me? I think the, the point that Paul's going to drive in a couple more weeks, we're going to see in 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 14, he says, all, indeed, all who live or to desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. It might look differently. For Christians in China, it looks different than Christians in South Sudan, than Christians in Afghanistan, than Christians in Saudi. It looks differently. But all of this is the same, and it's true. He says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Paul here to Timothy is tracing back, saying to Timothy, you, my child, you heard it from me, I heard it from Christ. And there's that chain of how the gospel has been handed down from generation to generation some of us, it's been our own family. Some of us can look at our parents and our grandparents and as far back as we can count that have been faithful and have passed that along. Some of us, our parents in the faith are sitting across the, the church in some other corner that was because they dedicated their weeks to preparing for a Sunday school to share the good news with a five-year-old who then became a six-year-old and all the way up. 
that that sharing the good news and trusting the faithful men, and especially when it means sharing and suffering, is exactly what Paul is driving at. One author puts it this way. He said, when, he wanted Paul, when Paul wanted to encourage Timothy, he did not attempt to persuade him by mere appeals to feelings. He's not trying to convince him that it's going to make you feel a certain way or, or relieve some of your stress, but rather by reminding him of solid doctrinal truths that grace, grace strengthens, that the gospel is worth it. These truths, which he knew Timothy believed because he spent years living with him, reminding him of this good news, showing what that looked like in hard and enjoyable times. To be sure, the author says, feelings are important, but feelings which follow the facts of the gospel driven deeply into our minds and hearts, those are important. Feelings follow the facts of the gospel. That's why Paul, later on in Philippians, can say something so seemingly outlandish and absurd as what he writes in Philippians 1.29. He says, For it has been granted, and that word granted is the same word for graciously given, has been granted you that you suffer, sorry, for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's a gift that you've been given to obey the command to be strengthened in grace and the way that you do that as you're entrusting that to other believers, to faithful men, that it's going to cost you something to show, to anchor, to remind you that it's worth it. So that at the end of the day, hopefully all of us can say along with James, the the brother of Jesus himself. James 1, 2, and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, the rest of the passage in 4, 5, and 6, Paul gives us three illustrations, three uh, similes, figurative language Examples of what this looks like. The faithful soldier, the athlete who competes according to the rules, the farmer who's hardworking and therefore gets to receive the, the first of all of his work, the, the reward, reaping that harvest. All of these examples, the, the faithful focus of the soldier. You, you don't go into the Army or the Marine Corps because of one really good strong motivation to serve, and then six months in, figure that, oh yeah, but it's really the GI Bill. It's really sweet. That's not, the, that's not how it works. You don't start off running a race having trained for months or years on end, following all the regulations, running every single practice run, obeying the rules, and then deciding the Olympic trials, eh, rules, I'm going to cut the corner. You don't work hard season after season preparing soil, uh, waiting for rains to come, fertilizing the ground. And then look at the crops come up and say, "Ah, I don't know, it's probably not that good this year. You get to enjoy the reward 
of the harvest. And so the command comes with the ability to do it, to be strengthened by grace, to entrust the gospel to faithful men, and to share in suffering. None of those are empty commands. They're all empowered by the very same Spirit. And for some of you that are good readers, you're looking at verse 7 going, there's another command there. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is, again, not an empty command. And it's not just to say, oh, well, I should ponder that as I'm driving home today after church. That's, that's a good time to do this. It's a, when does that stop? Because you're always in life. You're always needing grace. You're always wondering, am I going to have the strength, the courage, the empowerment, the moral fortitude to stand up for what is right? And you're always going to need to be thinking rightly so that your feelings will follow and your actions will be in line with what you firmly believe. So that in obeying these, you can say what Paul said, I work harder than any of them, but it was not me, but the grace of God that is within me. Young people going off, graduating college, going off, sorry, graduating high school, going off to college or the military or, or nursing school or a, a, a job, all of these times, this is, this is important to remind yourself to think over these things, relying on the Holy Spirit that will give you understanding in everything. And the way that he shows you that is by returning your mind and heart to his word. To say, here is where the truth is anchored. And then I get to see that plausibly lived out in my parents, in my community, in my Sunday school teachers, in my small group leaders, in my youth leaders, in these people around that gather every Sunday, not just to sit here and feel warm fuzzies about some dude talking. They come here to be anchored again, to be refreshed in God's word because they're here and here alone is the source of grace that is empowering. It will pick us up. It will refresh our souls. It will encourage us for another hard day, wherever that hard day comes. And it will allow us to enjoy what is most enjoyable about the gospel. When hearts are changed, when lives are shaped, when good news comes, we can enjoy that. When hard news comes, we can rely on the same grace that saves, that will help us endure and persevere so that at the end of the day, we can reap. We can enjoy what the Lord has produced in our, all of our lives, the fruitfulness that comes with persevering grace. Let us pray. God, our Father, as we come to you, we pray that these commands would not be empty. These specific words that Paul wrote to Timothy will also be personal and specific for us, that we can know there's goodness and something worthwhile being strengthened, being empowered by the grace that's in Christ Jesus, that our union with Christ means everything for our life. I pray that we would think on these things, that you would give us 
clarity, that you would help us to be encouraged, that you would help us to uh, be refreshed, that this passage would lead our thoughts to other ways that you have taught us the truths in your word, shown us the glories of your grace, and reminded us of many people's examples that living in line with your gospel and grace is worth it. I pray this through Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.